just sell the thing that solves the problem. And that's usually quite simple. So if your product is not simple, then it, it hasn't focused in enough on the particular problem that you need to, to sell. In general, just less product. I think you know any new entrepreneur just thinks product, product, product the whole time, just less of it. Build a proof of concept and go out there and market the hell out of it, sell the hell out of it. And then once you've got that hook in it, then you can come back and say, right, how can we, how can we force multiply this audience we've built by adding new features? Mm-hmm. Startup 101. Welcome to Digital Serving. My name is Darren Smith, and I'm your host that will take you on a ride with our guests as they share their highs and lows of their digital journeys. Today, that guest is Christopher Mills, and our theme for today is speaking about user adoption. Some of the stories that Chris is going to share with us is the chicken and egg story, where he had a platform that required user-generated content, but he could not get user adoption without really good content, which resulted in him evolving his business. Secondly, we're going to talk about the importance of partnerships and how he uses these to grow his user adoption. Let's go digital surfing. Welcome, Chris. Thanks so much for joining us today. Let's get started with a very basic question. Who is Chris? Okay. I guess Chris is defined by what he does. So I'm one of the co-founders of Paper Video, online tech startup, and I've been involved in a few education-related projects prior to that. And that seems to fill my days. I, I don't know if there's any other angles to me that you'd be interested to hear about. Yeah. So in our planning, one of the things that stood out for me was you said one of your interests is consciousness. Yeah. How would you describe that? What is that? Yeah, well, actually, I wouldn't be able to, most notably because the scientific community itself has not been able to answer that question, what consciousness is. There's no objective definition for it. So in that sense, it represents the conceptual frontier of our minds, and that's what interests me about it. And has this led you down the route of businesses that you've been involved in, like education, I mean, using the human brain and mind and that type of thing, or is it a coincidence? Well, I think there could be some underlying connections, but yeah, on the surface, at least coincidental. But I very much have always been interested in knowledge and learning, hence being in education, but also reading up on a lot of topics myself. You know, I find that knowledge is the cheapest way to explore. So you can physically explore the universe, get in a car or a space rocket and go out there and explore, or you can pick up a book and you can open up new frontiers in your mind. And it costs you next to nothing to go get a book and to start on that journey. I've always been fascinated by how we are whoever we are in that particular moment. And just like that, within an hour, we can just become a little bit more of whoever we are just by acquiring a bit more knowledge. The other thing that you're interested in is ancient civilization, the natural world. And if you look back at history, there's some things that were done a long time ago that we still can't work out how that was done. With your interests in that and education, have you picked up, you know, was there loss of knowledge or learning or what have you learned by having that interest in, in ancient civilization? Yeah, so I think one of the most interesting things is that, as you've alluded to, often we look back on ancient civilizations, like the the most common one is Egypt and its pyramids that, like they say, how would we even be able to do this today? And I think it's not that we lose knowledge, it's just that we refocus our attention. So if we suddenly decided now that microprocessors were no longer the forefront of technology, we wanted to go back to stone cutting 
for instance, I don't think it would take us too long just to get back, like in, in the order of generations, perhaps. But if humanity's focus shifted back there, we would re rediscover these ancient arts. They're just they're no longer applicable. So we don't practice them. People don't pick up and run with the knowledge anymore. So it gets lost. So I think, and this gives it an air of mystique, but I think a, a nice way of putting it like this is, I think the, the microchip is probably one of the most influential pieces of technology on the planet today. And in 5,000 years time, will they have microchips? And if they don't, will they even care? Will anyone really know how they work? They might say, well, you know, there's some logic gates on a piece of silicon chip. But, you know, beyond that, these guys must have had contact with aliens to be able to do what they did. Super interesting. I'm kind of sticking a little bit on this topic, but if I look at your key learning over the different businesses that you've had and been involved in, one of the things you said is that you learned how difficult it is to get people to adopt new things. And, you know, sticking on your interests here, something that comes to mind for me is you look at the natural world and I don't know, a colony of ants, as an example, I think it's called a colony. And the next thing, there's a river that floods, and then they have to adapt. From the way you've said, the biggest learning you've had is around the need for people to adopt new things. Do you think that us as humans can learn from that kind of natural world and how they adopt new things? I think we're more embedded in that cycle than what we might like to think. In fact, like another, what I'm saying is, we are more ant-like than what we would like to think of ourselves. So I think we already do. And in the same way that we, an ant colony will adapt when it becomes flooded. It won't adapt when the water is a meter away from it. Or, I don't know, maybe they will. For the analogy, they will have to have the problem for landing on their heads for them to react to it. And we as humans are very much the same. We try to see the future as much as we can and plan for it. But even history has shown so often that you can go to people and you can tell them that tomorrow something bad is going to happen. And it's within most people's nature to wait and see and effectively be flooded like ants in a colony and then move with it as it happens. I love that. I really love that. So we've been talking a lot about theory over here and, uh, and your interests. Let's take the conversation to business. Tell me, what is paper video? What's it all about? So paper video is a very simple concept. Very, very simple. So simple, in fact, I almost didn't do it. And it's to say that you've got private tutors, you know, pay you a couple hundred rand an hour, you sit down, you show me how to do a problem, and then you go home. And I was one of the tutors benefiting from this model. And I thought to myself, well, is there a way for us to scale this? Because there's a one-to-one -one mapping of tutors to students, whereas the, the population of students is far greater than tutors. So naturally, you can see that, wait a minute, this model doesn't scale. It's going to hit its limits, and a whole lot of kids are not going to be able to get the help they need. So how can we replicate it? And after having tutored for a number of years, I realized that the common trend with students was they'd invite you around for an hour. You'd sit down, they'd pull out a past paper, and they would say, I'm stuck on this, and I'm stuck on that. And then you would help them through the questions you go home. And I, and I just thought to myself, look, there's only so many past papers out there. And, you know, we could just shoot little video explainers for every single question in them and put them online. Then you're done. It's like, you know, almost in theory, um, you're done with private tutoring. All the tutors can go home now. There is, of course, another element to tutoring, which is micromanaging, which is probably a more valuable hidden service in the whole package. But that aside, it was this idea of, well, let's do that. And we did it. And we shot videos for hundreds and then eventually thousands and then eventually over 10,000 individual questions. And they're all available on paper video. And 
a very important problem that comes up is technology, access to tech, data costs, internet access. And we got around that using micro SD cards to load all the videos on so that you didn't have to have data or access to the internet. So that in a nutshell is paid video. And then how do you make money from that? Are you paying for a subscription basis or how does that work? Yeah, so the subscription model has been a recent one for us. So we've definitely gone through some teething pains this year in rolling that out. But before then, you would just pay for a one-year once-off license and you could get online access or you could, we also have print books of past papers, QR codes next to each one of the questions. So you can use our app to scan the QR code and that video pops up. So those were the two, the, the online and the offline approaches that we took. And prior to paper video, there was paper queue. So how did paper queue mm. evolve into paper video? Yeah, evolve almost implies that it didn't completely die, that there was some kind of continuity. Conceptually, it evolved in that paper queue was targeted at university students and you would upload past papers and people could come and contribute to the platform. They could add videos to the platform and people could come and literally pay per queue. So you buy credits and you'd pay like five rand to watch a video for a question you're stuck on. And so I bought the whole platform um, on an absolute shoestring budget when I was still a student. And I put it out there. And there's this beautiful platform and I was so proud of it. And then, you know, I just listened to the crickets and watched it just disappear into the abyss because no one was on it. No one wanted to be on a chicken egg scenario. There was no one. No one's going to create content on an empty site and no one's going to go to a site that has no content. And so it was at that point that I realized, look, Everything's great to this idea, but we're going to have to be the egg. We're going to have to start creating this content ourselves to drive usage. And that's, that's paper video. Your own content. So you've got the egg there. But there's still the element of user adoption then. So how do you plan then to get the users that need those answers to find and come to the platform? What's your adoption strategy? In the very beginning, everything was just free access. So when you say free, then people go check you out. And that's obviously not sustainable. So what we then went on to do is find corporate sponsorship for our books. So they would sponsor to be rolled out to schools. And everyone's running around with a book now. So there's a lot of exposure around that. And then over time, it's just been the traditional social media marketing channels, Facebook, YouTube, etc., Google Ads, of pushing the message out there. But I'd say that overall, it's a hard grind to gain that exposure, because even once you've covered all of those bases, ultimately, I think the strongest thing is the referrals from people. So my friends said it worked for them, or this parent that I know said it worked for their child, and then they adopted. And that's, that's a networking effect that it doesn't matter how much you shout out to the country, that crawls along at an almost organic pace. And sticking on the topic of user adoption, because I'm feeling that's absolutely the theme for today's podcast, I, I don't know how long you've been going along this kind of drive to get people to actually use PaperQ. Now that you've got all the uh, kind of questions and answers up, uploaded, but how has that evolved? Getting insights as to how, to, I mean, you've mentioned referrals, you mentioned social and Google AdWords and so on. Was it always along that or did it end up being that? Or have you started with some of those things and actually switched them off because they don't work as effectively? How's that kind of drive to get those end users evolved over the time that you've had the platform live for? In the beginning, we did a lot of social media advertising. We've continued to do it on and off thereafter. It's definitely not a silver bullet and we haven't relied solely on it. I think the evolution that's taken place in terms of our marketing exposure is placing a greater emphasis on direct 
partnerships, I guess what you would call sales, actually, as opposed to marketing. So going to a school, creating that relationship, and then feeding that relationship. And it, I think what makes it less attractive in the beginning, especially when you're in your first year of a startup, it's like everything must happen as quickly as possible and it must scale to infinity like within a year. And so things like going and speaking to one or five or 10 schools and fostering a relationship over the course of a year or two, I mean, you scoff at that. But over time, we've come to embrace the fact that no, you actually have to do that because that networking effect that I spoke about earlier, that is going to be built upon those direct efforts. Yeah, it's interesting. So many people think that all they need is the idea for the app or the piece of technology, but there's so much more that needs to go into it to make it successful. Yeah, I think I think just on that point as well is when you mentioned the idea, everybody who starts something, or almost everybody believes that the idea they've got is so amazing and they just have to basically just open the front door and whisper out to the, on the street about it and it's just going to rip through society. And I think that there's kind of an underlying principle to that. Assume your idea is that good, that it is but a whisper away from ripping through society within a year. There are a lot of people out there who know a lot more than you and have a lot more money than you and they would have done it before you. So at the end of the day, you're going to have to fight. You're not going to be able to get away with a whisper. You're going to have to fight to get people to know about who you are and why they should give you the time of day. Absolutely right. Okay, so moving on to the, another one of your ventures, which I think you pronounce pickle. Is that right? Yes, pickle. <laughs> All right. Uh, it has nothing to do with actual uh, pickles that you put on burgers. No, but it is indirectly related because it's based on the, the metaphor of being in a pickle uh, when you're ah. in a challenging situation. So yeah, whatever connection there is from that saying to actual pickles, then yeah, <laughs> translate. All right. So if it's, if it's not about the pickle you eat, what is pickle all about? It's about the pickle you might find yourself in. So in other words, if you spilt red wine on the carpet or your car doesn't start or, you know, you don't know which terminal to go to in the airport, that was the underlying idea of pickle was that when you're stuck, you can jump onto this platform where you can rapidly access a community of people to help you uh, in that situation. And where are you in the life cycle of this product? I'm in the on ice stage of that, that life cycle. So <laughs> uh, basically I developed it in my spare time because I had the idea and I wanted to learn how to build apps because you know, kind of in the game. So may as well learn a bit more about it. So I chose that as my project to focus on. And it was always a toy project. And I never had expectations of it really going big because I had a video to, to look after and it was keeping me busy enough. And so it got to a point where I'd finished building it. I tested with a few people and from running a startup already, I know what it takes to go from Yaz a product to now Yaz Yaz mass adoption. And there just simply wasn't time for that. So it was, yeah, it's on ice. Maybe it becomes something, but for now it's on ice. And did you, knowing what you know from paper video and paper queue around user adoption in planning for this app, even if it wasn't something you were necessarily going to take to market immediately, how did you think I'm going to develop this app, put it in the app store, how are you going to get user adoption? How did you yeah. consider that? 
how I was going to do it is I was just going to find communities like in, in any area, so your local Volkswagen fanatics community or something like that, and drill down to very specific use cases where it's almost like that clubhouse concept where you get a whole lot of people together who've got a common interest. So you very quickly make it a beneficial platform for them. So that was going to be my approach. But yeah, as said, there wasn't the time to really commit to it. So I didn't do it. You mentioned in when you're talking now about paper video, there's almost like an element of sales, business development. So there's like, in this example, finding these different groups and communities. It's quite a difficult thing to scale. I suppose you'd need to build out a full business development team, a sales team, pretty much to go after these communities. Is that what you had in mind? So when we started paper video, to kind of take it back to the, the evolution of how it progressed, the, the jump from paper queue to paper video was about cracking the chicken egg paradox by creating the egg by the start of paper video there was still not really i don't think much focus at all within the team on how we were going to do that we were still very product focused and we just felt that by augmenting the product we would help with adoption we've been learning since the beginning of paper video on how to go about creating that community engagement how to seek them out and engage them and i think our top lesson that's come out of that is strategic partnerships go go partner with an organization or a group at a higher level who has access to that particular audience that you want to um, engage with and we found that's where most of our traction over the years has come from and in those cases i mean can it be going back to the kind of the natural world you get those symbiosis where one organism benefits from another and together they are greater and then you get the, I don't know what the right terminology is, a p- parasite where one organization benefits, but the other doesn't. So in finding these partnerships, which way do they focus? Was there always a mutual benefit or was there sometimes more benefit to you than the others and vice versa? I'd say that the more parasitic relationships, they haven't existed. And I think that, I think it would be tough to almost make one of those work because you know, the hosts, so to speak, would very quickly um, find the exit doors to that. I think in engaging in a potential partnership, if there's zero benefit, they're probably not going to go ahead with it because it's going to take up time and then you get nothing in return. So before you even get to like the negative uh, feedback, you're not really going to get past the boardroom on those ones. And all of our partnerships that we have had have, have necessarily been mutually beneficial. All right. Something else you mentioned earlier is giving things away for free. Everybody loves something for free. And the freemium model is well-documented. But there's also some situations where the freemium model results in people unwilling to pay. What have you found with using kind of the free, and I, I don't know if it's completely free or if there's a freemium element and how you've incentivized the upgrade from free to pay what have your insights been around that yeah so that took place very early on so we were purely free back in 2014 and then we added a paid component going into 2015 and every now and again you get somebody who pipes up and says you know why is this not for free and you have to delicately explain to them that well until bread and milk are also free that it it can't be that happens very seldom though most people are quite happy to pay Uh, in fact Education is a tricky one because it's at the end of the day, it's digital content. And there is a mindset that digital content should be free. Like in general, people have just got this assumption. Well, if you're going to charge me, I'll go find the next guy who's going to, who won't. And he's managed to figure out his ad revenue model. But I would say that what we have an interesting dynamic that has popped up every now and again is people thinking it's too cheap. So not really 
appreciating the value they're going to get. Oh, this is 99 Rand a month. Well, it can't be what I think it is. And, you know, every now and again, we catch them and we explain to them and then they get it. But so it can be, you know, price elasticity can be quite a tricky topic. Now, you've mentioned Rand a few times. This product clearly got a South African focus. Is there a plan to take it international or not? There has been for years to take it international. And we're not going to really focus too heavily on that until we've captured more of the market over here because servicing two different curricula would put a lot of strain on us. However, what we are doing is we've spoken to international partners for potentially rolling out. Canada and Kenya are two countries where we've found there's interest. So one of the questions I get really often when people speak to me about taking payment is all around the world, there's different payment methods, different payment methodologies. And and Africa in particular, South Africa has got its own unique ecosystem. So what is what have been the different payment methods that you've accepted and which ones have been most successful? We offer credit card and EFT payments. We used to do cash, but then COVID came and we no longer took walk-ins. Well, we were also not at the office much. But Roughly, I would say about 30% of our revenue is EFT versus the, the, the balance being credit card. A lot of times we've debated, like, do we just drop this EFT? Because it's a bit more of a manual process. We don't do the instant EFT thing because we think that a lot of people are scared of that. It's having a third-party application logging into your bank account. So we've always kept it manual. And on a few different occasions, we've considered dropping EFT. And every time we go, we go look at the stats and we look at that percentage again, we're like, no, our market is not going to like that, given that 30% on average access. Would that mean that the actual customer, the person paying, is often the student's parent? And, and so I suppose that makes it interesting from a marketing perspective. Are you looking at things like then marketing to the parents, assuming that they have other children that might be wanting yes. uh, this type of service? Yeah, so the parent is our customer. The, the, the student is the user. And this is something we figured out uh, very early on because our resources are high school targeted. We're essentially targeting the 14 to 18-year-old age group. They don't care about education as much as you'd like them to. They just don't. Give them some free data and you know an hour to kill, and they're off to TikTok not an education website. What they do do is they panic a week or two before exams, and then they try to cram a year's conceptual learning into that time period. So we don't target that market much. Not that we ignore them. We, we keep a social presence for them, and we let them know what's going on, and we engage with them. But when it comes to the crunch and making a buying decision, not only is it that reason that education is not number one on their list, but also they typically don't wield the credit card in the household. So you're speaking to the, the wrong person. So both the interest and the buying power rests with the parents. So they are your customer. Right. So from a front office tech stack, then, you know, you've got marketing and you are having to track what's working, what's not working, driving, user adoption, new users, brand knowledge, that type of thing. You've got sales and business development looking for those partnerships. Then you've got to have students that are getting errors, problems with their device. It could be problems with your yeah. platform. It could be a, a user error, whatever. Like, And so you've got customer support and help. Now, from a front office tech stack, sales marketing service, how are you stitching that all together? I would say that the marketing side is very automated. We know what we do and we just turn that mill each year. As mentioned, 
with time, we've realized that it's not the silver bullet. What we actually focus more on the tech support side, that's very important to us. In fact, my first job ever was on a technical support desk. So, you know, I understand that you need to have that in place. That's the face for the company, basically. And then the partnership development. So in terms of how we stitch it together, they don't really stitch together. You know, they they operate in their own silos. I don't know how that helps answering that. I I could go on a sales ranch now, but I won't. Uh, Interested to hear that they're in silos and best practice would see them all stitched together and complete customer experience. Yes, I see where you're coming from now. That would be lovely if we had that um, and we had somebody <laughs> driving that. But yeah, we very much, it's on one end, it's go and develop the partnerships. And then on the other hand, it's build and support the tech stack. So to have that kind of sales integration process is something that is lacking and we probably do with it. <laughs> All right. Well, I didn't pay you to say that, right? all right so let's wrap up if you had to do uh, in particular paper video again with what you've learned around user adoption what would you do differently create less product and focus those additional resources rather on partnership development and yeah you know as as well like integrating your sales your support all of that bringing that together into a holistic picture that's what i would do differently and and when you say create less product i mean are you are you talking about the actual that kind of platform and so on or are you talking about the quantity of content because i suppose both. It's, it's, it's both okay yeah so in other words if, if we could go back to the beginning we started out with just maths and then we branched out into physical science life science accounting and then even went into natural sciences at grade eight and nine level we should have just stuck with maths there's enough demand there and it would have saved a lot more resources and time and we could have then focused that effort on deeper watering around that particular subject also your engagement base so when you go to schools you're not just talking to maths teachers you know you don't have to go and find all the other subject heads as well so I think in general, just less product. I think, you know, any new entrepreneur just thinks product, product, product the whole time, just less of it. Build a proof of concept and go out there and market the hell out of it, sell the hell out of it. And then once you've got that hook in it, then you can come back and say, right, how can we, how can we force multiply this audience we've built by adding new features? Mm-hmm. Startup 101. It is 101 because the amount of startup advisors I've spoken to that have in businesses I've had that have told me, narrow your focus. And you know, you're thinking, oh, this feature will be cool and this tool will be cool and let's add this and let's go target this market. And yeah, often in the end, when you look back, they are, they are right. But uh, I certainly didn't want to hear any of it when they, when they were giving me that advice. Yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, I think also the other thing is people underappreciate how little you need to actually sell something. So if you've solved some small problem and you can convince a person that you've solved that particular problem, they'll say, yeah, okay, cool. I'll take that. It's like buying a burger. People sell burgers easily because the problem of hunger is an ever-present one that everyone can bank on. You don't have to have like a burger with fireworks coming out the top and all this uh, nonsense about it. Just sell the thing that solves the problem. And that's usually quite simple. So if your product is not simple, then it, it hasn't focused in enough on the particular problem that you need to, to sell. Take, for instance, if I'm in the kitchen and I need a knife to cut like tomatoes, right? That's what I need a knife. And it's like someone coming along to me and like trying to sell me a Swiss army knife and say, but look at all these features. You know, you can also cut and you can file your nails. I'm like, I need to cut this tomato. Give me a knife. I've really enjoyed chatting to you today. Thanks so much uh, for joining us on Digital Surfing. For those of you listening, if you enjoyed listening to us, please like this podcast, share this podcast and catch us on the next one. Thanks so much.